everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and our next guest today is Lori morenzi Kuhn. Now, I said yes, next guest, because Lori's the second of three podcasts we're recording today in our little Salt Lake 2002 Podcast Marathon. And I'm super excited to talk with you, Lori, because we've already done episodes with some of your closest friends and colleagues, Katie Clifford and Bev Carey. So Lori, welcome. And how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Christian. This has been such a gift for everyone who worked the games to reminisce and to walk down memory lane. And so thank you for what you're doing. And uh, I'm doing great. You know, the pandemic has shaken things up, but I think that uh, all things considered, we're all doing pretty well. Well, speaking of the pandemic, looks like you're working from a home office. Is that right? Yep. I work, I live in Park City, Utah. So I fell in love with Park City during the games. And I always had a dream of coming back here. I'm from Chicago originally uh, in Michigan, but I always dreamed of coming back and living in Park City. And during the games, I lived in Salt Lake, but I always hoped that I could come back. So yeah, just here at home. Well, hopefully soon we'll be emerging from this pandemic. I see that the governor here in our great state of Utah has moved most people down to yellow from right. orange, but Summit County is still in the orange category. We'll we'll uh, take that up with Chris Crowley. Yes, there you go. We know the guy, right? But yeah, I think uh, we were we were one of the hot spots because of the tourism and skiing. And I think there was actually some talk that there might have been cases during Sundance. So as they look back, but um, I think the city and the county is they're handling it really well. And how long have you been working there from your home office? Um, since that day after the jazz. After that game where Rudy and Donovan tested positive. So I guess that would have been the, I don't know, 15th of March or so. So yeah, it was, that was sort of a tipping point, no pun intended, that the, that the players were ready to tip and in Oklahoma City and our players tested positive or Rudy tested positive and later Donovan. So that was sort of like, it felt to me like that was the day that the world really shifted. And maybe it was because it was from the lens of events. Like we always look at things, but that was the moment where I think people really took started taking it seriously and made some big, big shift in the universe, I think. I want to touch on two things there. Number one, this time when the NBA canceled its season, I was with my wife shopping in Target. Oh my gosh. And and I saw this note on my phone. And we were in Target and we went there and there was no toilet paper, it was all gone. But uh, but we got a few other groceries. And while I was there, we saw this note that the the season had been canceled. And that was just that was crazy. That was really surreal because just a few days ago, I mean, everybody's you got stadiums with 20,000 people. They're watching they're watching games. And then all of a sudden, nothing. I was at the game, the last game, the last home game with Carrie and Bev and another friend. Um, and we were, we were at that last game. And then we went we were actually at dinner when the news broke and and. Carrie was with us and her phone was blowing up and she was just, you could just tell she would tell it better, but there was just so many things her mind was racing about what, you know, in the community, who the players had been around. It was just international women's day and all that. So it was, it was a crazy time, but I think that it was fitting that we were all together for that because it was, that's sort of the norm is that we all support one another and we're always there for these big, crazy things that happen. So it was pretty fitting. So we can blame it on you then. Uh, you guys all came together and then boom, global <laughs> pandemic. Never. No, not taking that one. All right. <laughs> no, I, I just joke. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, one thing I noticed 
our listeners cannot see you, but I can see you. And you have a five for the fight pin oh, that, yeah. on your scarf. So yeah. why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, this is such an awesome thing. I love to see how the serendipity of how the games actually brought me to my life's purpose to fuel cancer research through this crowdfunding campaign. And I think since you're local, you probably know about it. But if people are listening outside of the state, they might have seen a patch on the Utah Jazz uniform that says five for the fight where like a corporate patch would be. And so we, I get to head up Five for the Fight, which is our, um, our cancer campaign. I work for a company called Qualtrics, which is the creator of the experience management company. We're based here in Utah. And people have probably taken a Qualtrics survey a million times in their life. But um, we uh, decided to partner up with the Jazz. And instead of putting Qualtrics on the jersey of their uniform, we put this cause that we started called five for the fight, which was just this dream of what if we invited everyone to give $5 for the fight against cancer. And so people write the name, like I might write mom and say, my five is for my mom. And then it just sort of grows from there. And it, um, it's kind of exciting because it's five for the fight month. So that's why I have my pin on because it's May, which is the fifth month. So we are doing a big, um, do five challenge, which people can join. Um, and it's just, it's basically just do anything, five of anything, five fifty, five hundred of anything, and then donate $5 and post about it. So yeah, that's kind of the reason it's connected to Salt Lake is because I work with a lot of the people who worked on the game. So Don Sterling and um, Frank Zing and Heather and Carrie and Jim Olson, even there's so many people who were around that venue during the games who are still with the, with the Utah jazz. And so Qualtrics works with the Utah Jazz in this incredible partnership, which is a first of its kind, you know, the first cause marketing partnership in for a jersey patch like that in in North America. So it's really, really fun and connected. And I think having um, used sport as a mechanism for good, you know, catching you and I kind of all of us caught that vision of sport is such a mechanism for so much more. We were the largest peaceful gathering of nations after 9-11. So I think that we all kind of caught that and, and we're able to kind of use sport for, um, to fuel cancer research and to hire new researchers through Five for the Fight. Well, I want to come back to Five for the Fight when we get closer to the end of our episode. You mentioned a lot of interesting people there, yeah. and we'll talk about some of them too. But before we do all that, our listeners could not see on the camera, but you were holding up something from the Salt Lake. Yeah, something there from the Salt Lake 2002 uniform. Yes, this was the cross pack. I still use it. It's kind of embarrassing that I use it still, but um, obviously Marker was our, was our VIK supplier, but it had like the Velcro spot for your little phone. And we all had those tiny little phones back then. And I think mine had a little tiny antenna and, um, it just brings back so much memories. I think I probably have like something in here that's, you know, leftover from the games, but I remember leaving my cross pack in the mag mag and bag coming into a venue one time. I mean, it's just, it was always on you because it was where you had your stuff and your snacks and your things, especially for the outdoor venues. We were lucky to have an office indoors, but the cross pack. So many memories. <laughs> yeah, so many memories of the cross pack. And you talk about the tiny little phones, man. That is hopping back on the Wayback Machine. And you said you could probably have a little snack in there. I can imagine a bag of Wahoos. You know, we had Wahoos, uh, Wahoos all over the place. Have we been talking about Wahoos and hot dogs quite a bit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's been uh, front of mind for many people. Yeah. Uh, 
and I hope they never come back. If if Salt Lake hosts another games, please <laughs> avoid the hot dogs and the wahoos. Oh, poor, poor, poor. All of us eating, consuming all of those things. All right, Lori, let's go. Let's go back to the beginning. What were you doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? And what prompted you to move to the Salt Lake uh, 2002 Organizing Committee? So my path to the games actually started in Atlanta. I don't know. It's like a way, way back. But I was actually a volunteer for um, ACOG. I was a sport volunteer for rowing. So I worked at the Lake Lanier menu. Were you there? I was not. Okay. No. okay. I wasn't sure if I our paths crossed then. But um, so I was in college and they kind of put the collegiate rowers in this like random position, which was a boat holder. So we were, we were the ones that like laid over the dock and held the boats for the start of the race, which was incredibly, you know, it was just an amazing experience. And during Atlanta, we obviously had the bombing. And so there was some time where they actually drug the Lake Lanier and the starting system was some of the cables were cut. And so we ended up being part of this. This was my first foray into like a behind the scenes games moment is just to see how people came together and all the different teams kind of bonded together to make it work. And we were on the front lines as boat holders. And so we, um, we started the race just like a collegiate regatta, um, which was kind of crazy, but it was, uh, my first foray. Then I had an internship at, at us figure skating association. So the USOC had this great internship program, which was, it literally changed my life. And because of Heather Linhart Zhang, she was my boss. She was my manager and it was a PR and event internship. So it was a great training. And then I went on to do other things, but right before the games, I was actually working in Chicago where I'm from. And I worked for, um, like a startup essentially back in the late night, you know, the late nineties where when before everything <laughs> burst, like right at the time of the bubble burst. And I did a, um, I was doing like, it was like a college newspaper wire. So I was a journalism major and it was kind of like the associated press for college news. But I knew if I had the opportunity, I, if I could work at games, I would just love it. And so I applied and was able to, um, connect with the group there and immediately moved out. I didn't know anyone but Heather, um, and moved out to Utah from Chicago. So give me a sense of the time frame. When was it that you made that move from Chicago to Salt Lake? Um, it was 2000. So it was right, right after the scandal had sort of been tidied up a little. And so uh, they were starting to build out the, the teams more. And so we came on, um, Katie Clifford was the first person I met. I think she met me at the hotel and, um, and you know, some of the other people on my interview cycle were people I'm still friends with, like Lisa Leonard was in HR. So yeah, it was right at that point where they were really starting to build the teams and we had more of a sense of, of breaking out into sport teams and to, within all the disciplines. Yeah, I, I arrived around that same time as well uh, in, in, in 2000. And what was your exact role there in the figure skating uh, sport area? Yeah, so I was um, I was sport too. I love like thinking about it in terms of like radio, right? Because it kind of told you everything you needed to know was like who you were on radio. So I was sport too. And that was basically um, right under Heather. She was really in charge. We had a figure skating team and we had a short track team in that same venue. And, um, we got to really, uh, administer or oversee the field of play and wherever the athletes were, um, 
you know, in touch with whatever they were touching. We were trying to improve their experience and also recruit and train and manage the volunteers there. And just the people that were volunteering in sport were the ones that really had the um, roles that were closest to the action. So the ice patchers and the flower sweepers and the salon services and skater services and music and all that. So that was super, super fun. Those people were incredible and they were very well-versed in the sport, many of them. And it was, they're people that I see around town sometimes. And, um, so that was our role. It was to work with the international skating union and to, to help manage the field of play and really wherever the athletes, um, were whatever they're, you know, managing their experience, I guess. When did you actually make the move out to venue? We were very like right before, I think. Cause a lot of people were farther out, but we had the, um, the NBA schedule to work around. So as I recall, uh, it was very much like a quick turn. And I, I think Karen mentioned this in hers, but it might've been a couple days before, um, they did a lot of pre-work, but it was very much like it was a mad dash and logistics were, they were, they were doing some heavy lifting. And I have a lot of gratitude for everyone who, lays the groundwork that, you know, how do you, we've talked about building a house. I think Karen would say that it's like building a house and you have to have all the infrastructure in place. So we were very much close to the games. And I remember kind of being in the office and you know how things would just like disappear. Like one day, like these desks would be gone and then chairs would be gone. And, you know, it was just liquidation of all of the VIK. And we were some of the last people there, I think, as I remember. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of interesting memories there from the competition, right? It was uh, quite eventful. Um, what were some of your memories there, both leading up to and uh, during the competition? I was trying to think of that. Um, I think that I was trying to remember the stories sort of in chunks. And I think that the themes that kind of bubble up for me were teamwork. So pre-games, we were all, I remember a big storm at Snow Basin and everyone in sport was called out. Like it was like an all-call come to this venue at 4am and you're going to be like, bring your ski stuff, get your snow stuff on. And we're going to just all work on this together. So that was, that was a real memory that I have that we didn't all know exactly what we were doing, but they trained us and we were just like slipping the course and like helping do manual labor. And I remember going to pick someone up and I had like a basket of muffins and like a, some warm muffins and a headlamp. And that became sort of like our mantra, which was just like, just show up for people, you know, bring food. And it's probably going to be dark when you start and dark when you end. So have a headlamp. And that sort of served me through events my whole life, but because there are people that just, um, there's so much work obviously that goes into an event and there's, it's usually starting when it's dark out and ending when, when the sun goes down. So I remember that. And then I also remember pre-games, um, we got called in to be like backup line judges to just do some like backup timing. We weren't officials or anything, but we were there just to kind of like be an extra check for the, for the timing. So we were literally like on a stopwatch. And I just remember the short track, um, us team, there was a last heat and there was some dialogue around, um, two skaters throwing the race and potentially changing the outcome of the team. And I, I think back at that, uh, it was a crazy time. We were interviewed by the court of arbitration and it was like this fateful experience that we were not prepared for. And I think that that kind of, it just kind of showed me that 
you never know what position you're going to be put in. And you just have to kind of, you know, I remember writing notes. I probably have notes from that where I wrote down like what I know for sure, maybe, maybe kind of like Oprah style. But I remember thinking, what did I really hear? What did I really see? And it was like a a very growing up moment for me to be in that position. I think for all of us, we were all just kind of like, Oh my gosh, this is happening to us. So it was crazy to be so enmeshed in the details of everything, you know? All right. I got two, I got two, I got two questions for you. (laughs) Actually, one's more of a comment. Do you think they should make a muffin and headlamp Olympic pin? Heck yeah, they should. If there's the like green jello one, the muffin and headlamp. Oh my God, I would cry. If that was made, I would cry. Yeah, you need the muffin and headlamp Olympic pin. The other one, you get hauled into the court of arbitration for sport. I mean, metaphorically. What was the outcome? Metaphorically speaking, we were called, everyone was called separately. We had to, you know, everyone did their own talk. Um, They, the, the ruling... I'll let people Google into it, but the ruling stood that the result of that race stood, even though it seemed different than what had been happening all day. But that team, the person that could have made the team did not. But I, I, I feel like I have to think that everything happened the way it was supposed to and things worked out the way they needed to. I mean, that's the only way I can wrap my brain around that because it's like a little bit of a butterfly effect. Like that could have changed the course of those people's lives. So obviously it worked out the way it was supposed to, I hope. So I have to say I had a call or not a call. We did a podcast. It's just recently been published there with Jackie Edmiston was Jackie knife back in the day. Love her. And one of her favorite Olympic memories was watching her favorite Australian speed skater, oh, short track speed yeah. skater, yeah. cross the finish line after everybody else fell. What was that moment like? That was, well, that's like now a verb. You can say like you were Bradburyed or something. Like people say that, like as if that's like when you have just like you hung in there and you worked hard, but you just also were the, you were in the right place at the right time. That was the most, I think it's literally the most unexpected gold medal in, in Olympic history. I really do. Maybe I'm overstating it, but it was insanity. And there was just like bodies flailing everywhere. And he just like skated in, like he just was cool as a cucumber. And I think that he, his, also his demeanor and his attitude was so lovable that I think people just, he's like a legend, um, because he, he put in the time he didn't get in the mess of all that. I mean, short track is the coolest sport. I swear that sport is the most exciting sport to watch in some cases. And that was one of those races that goes down in history where it's just like, you never know what's going to happen. People would say that's short track. You know, it was, it was wild. I love the verb Brad buried <laughs> in some ways. I feel like that's my career. Like it, I just was, okay. I just happened to be someplace Christian, I feel the same way. I'm so blessed and lucky and looking back, it makes sense, but I feel so, 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 so lucky. So I actually, I want to ask you about that. You know, you, you did the Atlanta volunteer thing, then you come to Salt Lake yeah. and, and talking with your colleagues, it, it sounds like the, their experience just had a tremendous impact on them career wise and, and personally as well. So for you, what was, you know, what did you take from Salt Lake that helped you through the rest of your career in life? Oh, it for sure changed my life. Um, I would say 
not to get cheesy, but our fearless leader, Mitt Romney, I learned a lot watching him, observing him, obviously the people we worked with more closely, but I remember just like his leadership and that, that, that his level of detail and precision. I don't know if you remember this, but do you, is this word going to mean anything to you? Do you remember dot plans? Oh, yes. <laughs> so I remember that just has sort of stuck with me as the sense of like, and I don't remember if it was him that we were presenting to or Frazier, but it was like he would line up at his office and we would all be like, you know, nervous and bringing our plans. And the dot plan was that you would defend every single person that you had staffing wise. And you would have your dots on your clear, whatever it was, sheet of paper. And then they would layer on top of the CAD drawing. And then he would say, oh, there's like a cluster here. Now, I don't know if it was him. I just, In my mind, it was him. I, I can't remember exactly. But you definitely had to defend every single person. And there was just this real sense of leadership for him to like get in the weeds for that or his team and to also like just the simplicity of sometimes you just have to take a step back. And so in my career and my work, sometimes people just get super complicated, but just to be like, there's always someone that can just say, whoa, 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 like, let's take a step back. And what are we doing here? What's the outcome? You know, how many people do we have in this area? Could that person do that job too? Because each of those dots represented uniforms and meals and VIK and all the things. And I took that from him as well as on 9-11, that email that he sent. Do you remember that email? I wish I, I do. It. I do. You have it? Someone needs it. I don't have it. Someone's got no. it out there. But I rem- I don't remember what it said, but I remember the way it made me think about, you know, it was just like, go home for today and mourn and we have a big job to do and everything changes. And I guess you know, potentially the games might've been in jeopardy, but I never, I never felt that way. I don't know if you did. I always felt like we were just going to get it done and make it safe. And there was no question in my mind that we were going to get it done, but his leadership was absolutely phenomenal. And I would say those are, those are some of the themes I took. And then also just that whole, you know, no job is too small. I remember during the games, um, there was this, I distinctly remember this guy, he was with the broadcast team and do you remember like, so they would have the cameras would have the cords then. And so he, his job was to literally like drop the cord and then pick up the cord and drop the cord and pick up the cord, just like chasing behind the person who was carrying the camera. And I remember looking at him and we would see each other from time to time. And he was just like dropping the cord for the millionth time. And he was like, I went to film school for this, you know, but then also like we would exchange this look of like, but I would be nowhere. Like, I'm so lucky to be here in this moment, picking up this board. And that's kind of how I felt that we were, you know, there, there's no job that's too small, whatever level you're at. And, and it all kind of adds to the the full picture. And I don't know if it was the same guy, but it might've been the the final the ladies final when the scores came down to that last like Arena Slutskaya and Sarah Hughes and she was she had just skated lights out and she and her coach were in the dressing room and the cameras weren't allowed back there but that's where they were and that's where they were going to get the reaction and I think that we kind of were like okay you can go obviously no one was changing or anything but we were kind of like open the door like Meh. and that was the moment that I mean I could cry thinking about it, just the way they just crumpled to the floor in like this moment of joy and just their relationship and just all the stars that had to align for that moment to happen. It was, it was such a beautiful moment. So anyway, it might've been that same guy. I don't know.
Well, Lori, this has been a huge amount of fun. You mentioned MIT. Um, you worked with a lot of amazing people. Can you just give us a few minutes and talk about some of the wonderful people that you worked with there in the yeah. Salt Lake 2002 games? Yes. Well, I think that Slack brought together a lot of people with big hearts and passion and that were very capable. And um, some of them changed the course of my life forever, including Steve Kuhn, of course, who I'm grateful to him for our awesome family. And there was Amity Parkhill, who actually was my roommate in Chicago. And she came out to work for the games and ended up meeting Paul Terrence from ISB. And they ended up getting married. And they're always a ton of fun. And we keep in touch. Um, and then everyone from the jazz. So I'm honored to still work with people from the jazz like Don Sterling and um, Jim Olson, who was actually at the venue at the time, Carrie Holt Larson, Heather Linhart Zang, and Frank Zang. And then just learning from people in the trenches. So I have so much love and I've learned so much from Katie Clifford and Bev Carey, Todd Porter and Andy Gable, um, and so many more, but also to our venue team. Um, I learned a lot from Leanne Bingham and Cecilia Wilcox, um, Jan Domnovitz and Trino Martinez. I don't know if you're going to have any of those guys on, but they're a ton of fun. And then obviously my book club, our book club is, um, been a constant source of like, we just support one another and um, they're kind of like a board of directors for our, each other. And so that is Maureen Sweeney, who you've had on, Lisa Leonard, Tori Baker, Kristen Rector, Tanya Egan, Tasha Hatton, Julie Bartlett and Jen Anders. And then just I didn't know Michaela Parker um, during the games, but I worked with her uh, at the Community Foundation here in Park City. And then I also got a chance to work with Jillian Pearl and Nikki Y during the games. And we also worked together at Huntsman Cancer. So it's kind of amazing how many paths have wound back around, including Molly Mazzolini from Infinite Scale, who's now a partner at Five for the Fight, and her company supports Five for the Fight through employee giving. So it's all kind of connected and interwoven. I think that's what the games really brought to us and kind of reiterates that sense that your career is going to be long and winding, and you're going to work with a lot of the same people. Long before, like what my company, our company Qualtrics does, which is employee experience and customer experience and brand and product, but there was really a culture. And before experience or employee experience was really a word, Slack really created that environment to foster these relationships because they fostered. Do you remember there was like those sheets that had our our philosophy on them? And I remember one of the key philosophies. There might have been five was infuse fun in every meeting. And so there was definitely like this sense that we were going to have fun. This is going to be joyful. This is going to be, you know, we're going to come out of this as family. Maybe we didn't have that intention, but there was like, it was the groundwork was laid for this culture. Like remember peak of the week, the pals and all that, like, that's not something that most companies back then did. Now it's very normal to do these gatherings and to just overwhelm your employees with these little moments of joy. But I think that's what Slack kind of set us up to do. But those friendships, those are the people like the book club, our Slack book club, that's been meeting for 20 years. I think I've only been doing it for 12, but um, they're, they're like sounding board people. And I think everyone needs a board of mentors and uh, like a sounding board. And that's what those women are to me. Um, there's so many so many things I've learned from them and that they just get, you know, because they were part of the games. We've tried to have other people in that book club and it doesn't always work out just because we're always, we always devolve into some sort of 
you know, acronym or some sort of story or that kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, who else was I talking to about this on one of these podcasts? Oh, really? I don't, maybe it was, maybe. I, mean, I don't know if it was Karen, maybe it was Natalie, uh, Moldover. I, I, I'm trying to remember anyway. Yeah. yeah I, I remember the, you call it the philosophy. I, I, I remember them being the guiding principles, right? They were five. Do you remember the other? Yeah. The five guiding principles. I don't remember. I actually have them in storage somewhere. I probably need to pull them out. I know. Yeah, I got to find them. Infused fun in every meeting was one. And I think one was like, honor those who aren't present. Like there were like philosophical things. It wasn't just like, this is how we're going to work. It was very much about relationships. And like, I would love to find that because I think those will hold true. One thing I would say with respect to that is that, you know, for many companies, they come up with these things, but it just seems like lip service, totally. but it didn't seem like that way in Salt Lake 2002. I mean, the organizing committee, I felt practiced what it preached totally. um, and those guiding principles, they meant something. They really did. And that's actually what I saw in any position I've had since. So I worked at Huntsman Cancer Institute for 13 years. The Huntsman's were very involved in the games. And so I was aware of them then. There was a real sense there, you know, patient, it's patients at the center of everything and, you know, that. And then at, at Qualtrics, we have this thing called tacos and it's like, it's transparency, all in customer obsessed, one team and scrappy. And everyone lives those out. Like they talk about them all the time. And that's why we do buy for the fight because we're all in on one thing. We're all in on cancer research as opposed to trying to do a million different causes. We really just try to be all in. And I think that I've learned so much from, from really companies and organizations and people that live out their mission statement. Like my mission is to, my purpose on earth is to fuel cancer research. And I know that, and I, I can, I can kind of do anything at this point, but that is what I'm going to do it in different ways, but that's what my purpose is. And it, it also, I guess, is a larger theme. It could be that I want to um, create experiences that help, you know, purposefully grow organizations and causes. And that's what the Olympics really were, right? Like that's what we did is we, it was not about sport all the time. It was about gathering people in a peaceful way and getting the world together and showing our best selves with the world, which I think Salt Lake did really, really well. Well, this may seem like a personal question and well, I guess all of these questions are personal <laughs> questions because that's the nature of this interview, but, um, cancer, um, how did that end up becoming your life's work, your life's well, passion. It's funny you should say that. I definitely had been around cancer. My grandmother had cancer and passed away. It was dear to me and my, you know, bunch of other family members. But then my mom actually um, passed away a couple of years ago from cancer. And she, um, I actually started working on Five for the Fight the day that she, we really had her diagnosis. So I spent, I built Five for the Fight with many other people, but but I was actually often at Huntsman Cancer Institute in the infusion suite with my mom, taking calls and working from there. Um, so yeah, it hits close to home. Obviously, everyone has someone they could probably write on their hand. Um, but that's that's kind of how I got connected. I had a childhood friend who had cancer when I was little too, and I was just so curious about how that could happen and what cancer was and how it worked and why people died. And so that that was my real fascination, um, with it and what we could do about it. I'm not a researcher, but what, you know, what role could I play, which is to, to raise funds? Well, I find that absolutely inspiring because having it in your life, you could just, uh, grieve and yeah. everybody must grieve. 
uh, but you have taken it upon yourself to help as many people as you possibly can go through a very tumultuous time. So my hat's off to you. Um, I have mad respect. <laughs> well, so many people, thank you, have, have been through cancer and um, it's a well-worn path, I think. And, uh, and I think it's also a well-worn path to know that when you serve others, it definitely helps you work through stuff. So that's probably part of why I do what I do. All right. Well, I've had a super enjoyable time talking with you and learning more about you. It's been really, really enlightening. As I mentioned before we started this conversation, uh, we do have a few assignments. So yes. I want to get to those assignments. The first assignment is a song. Is okay. there a song or it could be more than one song that you hear today? It takes you right back to where you were in Salt Lake 2002. Totally. There's two songs because I have a little, sometimes a little extra, but the first one is um, Thank You by Dido. That song, if that comes on, it like, transports me back to my like lawn sitting on a blanket with a radio in the avenues. And I just, I, it also really speaks to like, I would just sit there and be like, I can't believe this is my life. I live in Utah. Look at these beautiful mountains. It was the first time I really lived by myself. And I just remember just having so much gratitude, um, for that moment. And then the second one I would say would be, there was a crew that would often end up in park city, like a lot of people in on the weekends and we would be treated to these like listening sessions where people would school us on what you know music we should be listening to. And so John Clark who was part of the creative team, he would lead us in these like schooling sessions about the Grateful Dead. So anything by the Grateful Dead but probably um like Eyes of the World, which is a song that there's a lyric that's like wake up to find that you are the eyes of the world, which also really speaks to what we were we were doing is that we, we got to be the eyes of the world and bring the world together. And that it was, it was this, you know, a rare experience that many people probably wanted to have. Um, so those two songs and a shout out to, to John and to Brendan Morgan and Clint who helped school us on what music, what recording we should be listening to for many, many hours. <laughs> well, we got two songs, Yay! two great songs for the price of one. So <laughs> listeners, you can be satisfied with that. And we'll take those songs and we'll put them on our Spotify playlist. So anyone who's listening, you can go to Spotify and you can search Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective and find all of the songs that have been nominated by all of our guests. So cool. Next question for you is a food question. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular restaurant that you like to frequent when you work downtown? I would say we all loved Fiddler's Elbow. It holds a special place in my heart, but it that was a great haunt. And that was over in Sugar House and still there, I think. Fiddler's Elbow, still around. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> to hear it. We've had several that have closed. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people have talked about the Globe or the Lazy Moon. Yeah. Um, you know, and... Uh, and so I list those out on my website, but I take a pin on the map and put them on all the restaurants that are still around. So I'll, I'll add the Fiddler's Elbow. And hopefully once we emerge from all of this COVID yeah. madness, you go. we can all go tour the restaurants that have been nominated by our friends. Like a, a crawl. Absolutely. <laughs> and now to wrap us up, our last question. What was your goosebump moment for the games? <sighs> There's so many, but the one that kind of keeps coming back to me is, um, it's just, 
uh, every night before the venue opened. So it was like before spectators came in, it would just be this moment where they would start the pregame, the pre-roll stuff. And I remember just being in the kiss and cry, which is such a classic figure skating thing to say, but I was in the kiss and cry where the skaters would later get their scores. And we were kind of tidying up. Jan was really good about like keeping things tidy. And obviously that was on camera. So I was vacuuming the kiss and cry carpet. And, um, I just, there was just a moment that struck me where I just looked up in the music and just the visual and the electricity in the air. It was just a purely beautiful moment to know what was going to happen in that place. And, um, before the doors opened and just the sense that we were all this community that was building this experience for the world really. And that the skaters were going to have the moment of their lives, hopefully. And, um, that's, that's a goosebump moment for me. Like actually, I love that. I love that. And also just like the children of light, we, they were in our exhibition and that was a super fun goosebump moment because the skaters let their hair down and we were like kind of in charge that night. It was like, it was a night where it was celebration and fun. And I remember one of the children of light, one of the lanterns was missing. And so this little beautiful child was like, where's my light and pretty cool as a cucumber. But, um, someone had to go get a lamp, a lantern from like the Eccles or something. And you know how hard it was to get in and out of venues, but they brought this light. And I remember like the beat hit and like the lantern got in the child's hand and they hit the ice and it was just like, okay, here we go. And that was kind of how things went. The whole games was that there was always, it was like on the beat, you know, it was very much uh, down to the wire, but it was uh, right, right on time. That's like stuff for the movies, right? You can see that in a movie and you think, ah, oh, that's just scripted. It didn't really happen that way. No, it really did. It really did. And also a broadcast light exploded right the very first night of competition when someone was in an interview. It was the moment we were toasting, like this has started. We, you know, once an event starts, it's sort of over, right? We were toasting that moment. And right at the moment of that toast, the light exploded. That was kind of like how things went for us. So everyone was okay, but it was... It was uh, an underscoring moment. Very cinematic, as you said. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. The Truman Show reminds me of The Office because you remember how like at 7 p.m. the lights would turn off and like the, the screens would come down, the blinds would close. And it, we called them, I think we called them like the loser lights or something. And you could like get, you could override the system, but that was like the sign of friendship where people would say, okay, it's time to go. Like we got to go get a bite to eat or go for a hike or something. And that was like a, the Truman show moment. Cause it was like everything got shut down and, uh, it was time to go. <laughs> it is pretty sad that you get your cue from building maintenance that it's time to go home and get a life. Right. Well, we, that was our life, you know, everything was, we worked hard, we played hard, but everyone was there all the time. There was everything bled into personal life. Everyone was just kind of working all the time. And that was before we had all these devices, you know, we were sort of in the office. We didn't have, I mean, we had phones, but we didn't have email on phone or anything like that. Did we? I don't know. No, we did not. Barely you could text. Could you even? It was very minimal. Yeah. But I mean, it was hard to text, right? Cause right. you got, you got 10 numbers and they had to turn into letters and it just took a long time. It was really frustrating. Yes. I had that phone for a long time and I actually, I kept it and I got, when I moved back to Chicago, I got, my number was 
my last four numbers was 2002. I like specifically requested that. <laughs> Sweet. Well played. Okay, Lori. Well, this has been a blast. If people want to learn more about the stuff that you're doing, the work you're doing with Qualtrics or um, any of the other interesting things that you're doing, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, well, I would love for everyone to go to five, the number five for the fight.org. Cause that's, that's really where all the magic happens for five for the fight. But personally, I'm on Twitter, Lori, L-O-R-I-M-K-U-N. And then LinkedIn is probably an easy way too. But yeah, I would love to connect with more people, but anyone could be a part of five for the fight. Any company can take it on. It's sort of like a white label that people can use to do an employee giving campaign or a um, event where they donate $5 per product or anything. So we'd love for people to be a part of it and to join this um, do five challenge, which is all throughout the month of May. Well, it's a fantastic program and a very worthy cause. And you. you should be proud of all the work that you've done. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. Again, thank you very much, Lori. Thank you so much, Christian. Such a pleasure. <laughs>